Here it is. From deep inside your audio device of choice. Ladies and gentlemen, in the context of the Russian meddling thing, it's now been uh, reformulated in many political statements as Russia's attack on our democracy. It's, you know, our democracy is a, is, is a precious thing. And anything that, any hackers from around the world had the rare opportunity to crack election-style voting machines last week in Las Vegas. They didn't disappoint after nearly an hour and a half. An associate professor at the University of Copenhagen successfully cracked into a voting machine at the Las Vegas DEFCON convention, according to CNET. He penetrated Advanced Voting Solutions 2000 WinVote machine through its Wi-Fi system. A voting machine has a Wi-Fi system, you see. Using a Windows XP exploit from way back in 2003, he was able to remotely access the machine. The convention purchased more than 30 voting machines for the event. The exposures of those devices to the people who do bug bounties, that is to say, they look for flaws in return for money. Um, that exposure has been fairly limited, said the director of security research for Newstar. So DEFCON's a great opportunity, says, for those of us who hack hardware and firmware to look to these kinds of devices and really answer that question, are they hackable? One San Francisco security outfit discovered serious flaws with the WinVote machine months ahead of the convention. The team did that by, well, they went to the trouble of plugging in a mouse and a keyboard and bypassed the voting software by clicking Control-Alt-Delete. But you, nobody would... It's really just a matter of plugging your USB drive in for five seconds and the thing's completely compromised at that point, said the co-founder of the San Francisco-based security thing, to the point where you can get remote access. He says it's very simple. The same team cracked the machine from a mobile application. That is to say, not a desktop or a laptop, but, you know, phone or a tablet, by installing a remote desktop program to it. One uh, Virginia poll worker was found to have hacked the machine, the voting machine, that is to say, to play Minesweeper. A hacker who identified himself as Oyster, tried to crack a Diebold voting machine after another team had compromised it. I hope we can find a load of vulnerabilities in these just so we can open it up to the public to see how serious the problem is, he told CNET. Hackers at the convention hope their findings will lead to lasting changes in voting machine technology. Uh, let me suggest one. Pieces of paper, pencils, good night. Changing votes, said an intern at the security firm, could be as simple as updating a Microsoft Excel document. Our precious democracy, ladies and gentlemen. And by the way, speaking of um, our setup in the United States, ACLU lawyers are preparing for an upcoming trial with the Memphis Police Department, and they've learned some things about the law enforcement agency's spying habits to their surprise. The uh, ACLU filed a lawsuit against the department 
way back in March of last year, its lawyers accused the uh, Memphis police of spying on local protesters in violation of a consent decree, that is to say, kind of a court order. The lawsuit was based on the existence of a existence of a, quote, city hall escort list, unquote, not what you think. It was created by Memphis police, mostly filled with the names of Black Lives Matter activists to be flagged by police if they ever set foot on the grounds of City Hall. After deposing key police officials and collecting hundreds of pages of evidence, ACLU lawyers learned that this was just a fraction of what was going on. The City Hall escort list not only flagged the names of Black Lives Matter-affiliated activists, it also included associates like people connected to those activists via social media, prior arrests, or often seen at assemblies with them. Police also prepared joint intelligence briefs. Why? You're lovely in your joint. Uh, That initially were about protests against police violence in Memphis, but quickly became a dossier, there's that word again, of any kind of anti-police violence activity happening across the nation, namely any of the organizations that arose out of Ferguson, even if it had nothing to do with Memphis. These intel briefings weren't just shared within the police department. They were also shared with the local sheriff, government officials, the school district, the Tennessee Department of Homeland Security, the U.S. Department of Justice, the U.S. military, the Memphis Light, Gas, and Water Company, the Tennessee Valley Authority, and FedEx and AutoZone. The police used social media collator software to easily search and monitor open source data and other social media chatter concerning protest activities. They set up a dummy social media account under the name Bob Smith to access information and correspond with people whose social media profiles were private, not accessible to the public. Undercover and plainclothes officers used this intel to monitor African-American hosted events and activities, even if they weren't protests. They monitored in stealth mode Black church meetings, memorial service for a teenager who was shot and killed by a Memphis police officer, a black-owned food truck festival, and a gathering at a local park where an organization gave out free book bags and school supplies. Police surveillance of protesters had been forbidden in Memphis since a 1978 consent decree. After the police department was accused of carrying out similar spying functions on civil rights activists dating back to when Martin Luther King was in the city advocating on behalf of sanitation workers. So you and I have to abide by court orders. Apparently the Memphis police don't. Hello, welcome to the show. I 
what I do is this thing right here from Edinburgh, Scotland, home of the uh, of, of this confluence of festivals during the month when there's decent weather in Edinburgh. I'm Harry Shearer, welcoming you to this edition of the show. And now, ladies and gentlemen. See, what advertising does is basically deals in opposites. So when they say it's a smart world, they mean... In a recent incident, hackers, speaking of hackers, took control of a digital parking kiosk. A parking kiosk, ladies and gentlemen, is connected to the Internet. because, And connected it to websites featuring adult content. This according to researchers at the cybersecurity company Darktrace. And reported by Business Insider. The kiosk didn't actually display the content... No, but it points to a worrisome trend Darktrace is preparing to reveal in its annual threat report, highlighting bizarre, bizarre, and unexpected ways that so-called black hat hackers, those are the bad guys, I'm sorry, I use that terminology straight from Westerns, attempt to subvert and infiltrate networks. The key takeaway is if there's a flaw, hackers will find and exploit it. Duh! Darktrace uses artificial intelligence, the very best kind, to identify unusual activity on a network, particularly involving unconventional connected devices, like your parking kiosk. Another incident uh, reported by them, hackers attempted to get into a corporate network by connecting to different Internet of Things devices on an industrial food assembly line. They managed to connect to industrial blenders, slicers, and baggers, and then attempting to move within the network. Why would you want your baggers online? Beats me. They don't contain valuable or exploitable information, such as pay stubs or anything, but the hackers wanted to trick the IT network into letting them connect to the greater company network. In theory, the hackers could then move around until making their way onto a PC or phone that does have valuable data. You know, they're like spelunkers. The Internet-connected appliances in this particular example hadn't been vetted by the factory's security experts. They just bought them online, put them online, and connected them to the network. Crucially, these devices did not have approval from the security team to be connected to the core IT infrastructure, says Darktrace. That's how Darktrace's AI detected the anomalous behavior and determined the activity to be a significant risk to the organization's assembly line. Yeah, when you call the slicers and baggers from your phone, it could... Hackers took control of personal storage lockers at at an amusement park in North America. These smart lockers, see what I'm saying? Connect with a third-party online platform when employees entered their access codes. The hackers used the locker connection to hitch a ride into the third-party platform and swipe data. They could have included identifying details or sensitive credentials. They had the potential to be transmitted over the Internet entirely unprotected, according to the report. Yes, peace means war, and smart means dumb. We are in the 21st century, ladies and gentlemen. And now, news of bad banks.
Well, when you say a bad bank, you got to think of Wells Fargo, don't you? Oh, they've apologized. And they have ads saying they've changed. And then there's this. They've agreed to pay, have Wells Fargo, $2.09 billion. That's just $2, two billion. That's, they got that in their pockets. To It's a penalty to settle claims related to mortgage loans originated in the run-up to the financial crisis way back in 2007, 2008. Yes, it took that long. The civil fine is for alleged origination. Alleged. Tom? Alleged. Yeah. And sale of residential mortgage loans the lender knew contained misstated income information and did not meet the quality that Wells Fargo represented to the buyers of those loans. That's according to the Department of Justice. Today's agreement holds Wells Fargo responsible for originating and selling tens, tens of thousands of loans that were packaged into securities and subsequently defaulted, says the acting U.S. attorney in San Francisco. The loans in question, subprime and other relatively risky, relatively risky home loans, we're pleased to put behind us these legacy issues regarding claims related to residential mortgage-backed securities activities that occurred more than a decade ago, said Wells Fargo CEO Tim Sloan. I wonder what took so long, Tim. You think any delaying induced by Wells Fargo's lawyers? It's the latest blow to the San Francisco-based bank. It tries to recover from a sales scandal that has hurt its results and tarnished its reputation. Just last April, the company paid $1 billion in fines, $3 billion this year alone, to resolve probes into auto insurance, insurance and mortgage lending abuses. What did they actually do? in the mortgage thing. Wells Fargo wanted, according to the Justice Department, to double its production of subprime and alt-A loans. That's not A-level class. You know, A as in good. But alt as in different kind of A, the kind you wanted on your report card. You know, that alt-A. Loans from 2005 to 2006. Why did Wells Fargo want to double its production of those loans? Because its market share in loan origination was falling. This is to uh, answer the, the uh, claims by those who keep saying, oh, no, it was caused by the, um, you know, Fannie Mae. Apparently, according to the Justice Department, it wasn't. It wanted more market share is what it was. And it didn't want to be too fussy, so it took a number of steps to encourage its underwriters to be more aggressive while processing loans, including adding new categories for their compensation if they sold enough loans or wrote enough loans that they could be sold. One way was for what were called stated income programs. A loan would be approved based on unverified financial statements by prospective borrowers. How much do you make every year? A couple mil. Good. You're in. Between August 2005 and October 2007, Wells tested 1,211 loans in two programs, most of the applications, more than 70%, had a substantial discrepancy between the borrower's stated income and the income information reflected in the borrower's most recent tax returns as filed with the IRS. The average variance was approximately 65%. What's that among friends? The results were widely distributed among Wells Fargo's employees, who promptly did nothing about it. One manager asked his supervisor about risks related to knowing the results but not taking action. 
At least 73,000 of these stated income um, loans were sold as components of mortgage-backed securities. Nearly half of those loans have defaulted. As uh, we said, the bank pointed out the conduct being penalized was not recent. The past, was it Faulkner said the past is, or, or Hemingway, one of them, one of those guys. The past is not over, the past is not even past. Now I've screwed it up entirely. News of bad banks is all I can say now. Oh, I can say more. I can say, here's news of the warm, won't you? It's chock full this week. It's almost like there's a lot of stuff happening with regard to our our climate and stuff. Deadline Toronto. Ocean scientists from the University of Toronto and the University of California, Santa Cruz, published a study in Science. Science! It shows how an increase in CO2 in Earth's atmosphere more than 50 million years ago dramatically changed the chemistry of our oceans. Researchers suggest if contemporary global carbon emissions continue to rise, the future of many fish species in our oceans could be at risk. Our study shows global warming is not only about extreme weather events or hotter summers, it has the potential to alter the ocean's structure with unknown consequences for fisheries and fish, says a professor in the Department of Earth Sciences at the University of Toronto, co-author of the study. We show the last time large amounts of CO2 were injected into the atmosphere, not only did the planet get hot, I mean really hot, you know, like the, which is, that's known as the Paleocene-Eocene Thermal Maximum, because it came between the Paleocene and the Eocene, you see. Um, not only did the planet get hot about uh, 55 million years ago, but it also changed the chemistry of the ocean quite markedly. It's widely suspected an increase in CO2 leads to warming, which then results in less oxygen in the oceans. That allows sulfate-eating bacteria to thrive, which produces hydrogen sulfide, a toxin which is lethal in small concentrations. This will affect fish species that live or dive deep in the ocean, said the researchers. Most notably, it would impact high-level predators like tuna and whales, which in turn would have a ripple effect on fish species living in the commercially more relevant shallow waters. The uh, Paleocene-Eocene thermal maximum gets its name from the boundary between two periods in Earth's past. The amount of CO2 into the atmosphere during the period was similar to the projected trajectories of CO2 towards the year 2100. It's viewed as a good model for the fossil fuel burning activity currently occurring. Increased atmospheric CO2 go hand-in-hand with oxygen loss in the ocean. This is the first demonstration that CO2 released from human activity could be large enough to turn parts of the ocean into a toxic brew, said the researchers. They can't say how long it would take for the impact of increased CO2 levels to become evident. They say the transition would be quick. Hurry. We're poisoning our ocean, ladies and gentlemen. But, you know, it's our dump anyway. Why not poison it? The vast reservoir of carbon stored beneath our feet is entering the Earth's atmosphere at an increasing rate, most likely as a result of warming temperatures. That's the suggestion from observations collected by a variety of the Earth's, or from a variety of the Earth's many ecosystems. Blame microbes. 
says uh, Eureka Alert. I always do. And how they react to warmer temperatures. Their food of choice, dead leaves and fallen trees, contains carbon when bacteria chew on decaying leaves and fungi chow down on dead plants. They convert that storehouse of carbon into CO2 that enters the atmosphere. In a study just published in Nature, scientists show that this process is speeding up as the Earth warms and is happening faster than plants are taking in carbon through photosynthesis. The rate at which microbes are transferring carbon from soil to the atmosphere has increased 1.2% over a 25-year time period starting in 1990. Such an increase on a global scale in a relatively short period of Earth time is massive, consistent with predictions that scientists have made about how the Earth might respond to normal temp- uh, to warmer temperatures, but this is a finding based on observations in the real world. <laughs> I'd like to find that place. Common plastics are releasing greenhouse gases into the atmosphere as they degrade, a new study shows. What about uh, cultures? What happens when they degrade? Greenhouse gases have a direct impact on climate change, as you know, have been previously linked to changing sea levels, increased global temperatures, drought, and blah, blah, blah. The research carried out by the University of Hawaii's School of Ocean and Earth Sciences and Technology discovered that methane is being released as plastic is broken down. Methane, as you know, is a greenhouse gas more intense in its effects than carbon dioxide, although it's much less longer in its um, duration in the atmosphere. The plastic study are used to create a variety of everyday items such as food storage, textiles, construction materials, and a range of other goods. Not your range, though. Polyethylene, commonly used in plastic bags, was responsible for producing the greatest amount of the greenhouse gases. The author of the study says plastics represent a source of climate-relevant trace gases expected to increase as more plastic is produced. That's not going to happen. And accumulated in the environment. This newly discovered source of methane has not been factored into global estimates and could prove to be significant in future predictions. Considering the amount of plastic washing on shore on our coastlines and the amount of plastic exposed to ambient conditions, says one of the authors, our finding provides further evidence we need to stop plastic production at the source, especially single-use plastic. As you know, we're getting right on that. And the annual State of the Climate report compiled by more than 450 scientists from over 60 countries, the hoaxers, I call them, describes worsening climate conditions worldwide in 2017. The United States is the world's second leading polluter after China. The 300-page report issued by the American Meteorological Society and NOAA mentioned the, world, mentioned the word abnormal a dozen times, referring to storms, droughts, scorching temperatures, and record low ice cover in the Arctic. All three most dangerous greenhouse gases last year reached new record highs. The record for the hottest year in modern times was set way back in 2016, but 2017 was not far behind. The world's highest ever temperature in May was observed this year in western Pakistan, 128.3 degrees at 11 Unprecedented heat enveloped the Arctic, as you know. Land surface temperature there to almost 3 degrees Fahrenheit above the average between 1981 and 2010. Today's abnormally warm Arctic air and sea surface temperatures have not been observed in the last 2,000 years. And who was observing them then? 
Global sea level reached record high in 2017 for the sixth consecutive year. The average sea level is now three inches higher than in 1993. I think of the oceans like a freight train, says an oceanographer from NOAA. If we were to freeze greenhouse gases at the level they are today, the oceans would continue to warm and seas would continue to rise for from centuries to millennia. So the next time somebody asks you, how are the oceans like a freight train? You'll be able to answer news of the warm. It is a copyrighted feature of this freight tra- of this broadcast. Eu faço sabe amor até mais tarde e tenho muito sono de manhã. Escuto a correria da cidade que arde e apresso o dia de amanhã. De madrugada a gente ainda se ama e a fábrica começa. O trânsito contorna nossa cama Reclama do nosso eterno espreguiçar No colo da bem-vinda
from Edinburgh. This is Le Show. And you know what would be fun right about now? The Apologies of the Week. We're so sorry. First from Channel 2 in San Francisco, Oakland. Today, as we covered the killing of Nia Wilson, several pictures of her were used during our newscast at noon, and one of those pictures was insensitive, and for that, we apologize. As soon as we realized the mistake, we took action so that it would never air again. We want to apologize to Nia's family and to our community. Also, if I could, I just want to go off script for one second. Um, I've been working here for 30 years. We have a lot of really good people here at Channel 2, people who care deeply about what they do. Uh, there's no doubt, though, we made a mistake. It never should have happened, but we made the mistake, and we are owning up to that mistake. Uh, I also want to say that Nia was just a beautiful young woman, and I can only hope right now that her family and that her parents are watching so that they can see me and all of us here at Channel 2 saying that we are so sorry about what happened to your daughter, and we are sorry about the mistake uh, that we made today. We're sorry. I think he's sorry. Apparently, they ran a photograph of somebody, maybe it was the uh, murder victim, posed with a handgun. Now, I'm sorry. Dateline Washington Nationals national shortstop Trey Turner apologized last week for some years-old homophobic and racially insensitive tweets. He became the latest in a series of major leaguers to address offensive language they used on social media. Not mean tweets, teen tweets. Tweets, uh, well, Turner said there's no excuse for his language. He's 25, and he's sincerely sorry for these tweets and apologizes wholeheartedly. I believe people who know me understand those regrettable actions do not reflect my values or who I am, he said in a statement issued by the team. Wonder who wrote it. But I understand the hurtful nature of such language, and I'm sorry to have brought any negative light to the Nationals organization, myself, or the game I love. Also, Atlanta Braves pitcher Sean Newcomb apologized last week for racist, homophobic, and sexist tweets he sent as a teenager, calling them some stupid stuff. They never apologized for tweets criticizing corporations or labor unions. Just racist and homophobic. These teenagers are hung up. McDonald's has issued an apology after an expectant mother in Canada was served cleaning solution instead of the latte she ordered. Sarah Douglas, eight months pregnant, asked for the coffee at a drive-thru in Alberta. She took a short a, a sip a short while later, only to discover the brownish liquid in her cup was not coffee and milk. Pulled her car over and immediately spat out the substance, drove back to McDonald's, there's your mistake, and told one of the employees she wanted to speak to the supervisor. I showed him the coffee and he asked if I wanted a new one. <laughs> and I said, absolutely not. The restaurant franchisee said in a statement he was sorry for the incident. He explained the machine had been cleaned as usual that morning, but the milk supply line to the latte machine had not been disconnected from the cleaning solution while her drink was prepared. Could happen to anybody. Jeremy Hunt the new foreign minister of Great Britain, relatively new. I remember him when he was culture secretary and the subject of a great spoonerism on BBC Radio, but we won't go into that now, if you don't remember it. Culture secretary Jeremy Hunt, he was. Jeremy Hunt today, uh, this week admitted to making a terrible mistake after saying his Chinese wife was Japanese during a diplomatic mission to Beijing. The uh, secretary wants to use the visit to boost trade links after Brexit in a potentially awkward slip-up 
According to the Times of London, Mr. Hunt apologized after telling his Chinese counterparts that his wife was Japanese. Relations between the two Asian economic superpowers have long been marred by maritime disputes and historical rivalry. Hunt's apparently apparent confusion over his wife's nationality plays into nationalistic perceptions about the way West views Asia. Hunt was quick to realize the importance of his slip-up, adding, Sorry, that's a terrible mistake to make. I'll try to make a better one in the... F no, he didn't. Political cartoonist Jeff Danziger apologized over the weekend for a body-shaming caricature of White House Press Secretary Sarah Sanders, who was originally set to run in the Rutland Herald newspaper in Vermont. That particular cartoon is being withdrawn and redrawn. Nice. Because it was felt it indulged in body-shaming, which I apologize for, Danziger said. So I'm doing something else on Ivanka's clothing line. I'm no one to criticize anybody's physiognomy. The original cartoon showed a homely and hunched over Sanders, which also mocked Ivanka's decision last week to close their fashion line. Pittsburgh District Judge Thomas Caulfield apologized Wednesday after a video of him suggesting that a police officer shoot a man who visited his office went viral on social media. That never happens. The video appears to be from the police officer's body cam. It shows the officer entering an office to ask Caulfield what to do in the future when Brian Jones of Forest Hill stops by the office. Caulfield tells the officer to shoot him. I don't think he should be on the bench, said Jones. Him apologizing to someone else means nothing. Jones said Caulfield has not apologized to him. Caulfield's statement, quote, I apologize to making the, for making the statements in the video. I would like to acknowledge that the statements I made in the video were inappropriate. It was certainly not my intention for these statements to be taken seriously. I deeply regret any harm that this has caused, unquote. Basically harm to him, I think. Back to Great Britain, Labour Party leader Jeremy Corbyn has apologized for appearing on platforms with people whose views he completely rejects. His statement was in response to the Times. There's that Times again, owned by Rupert Murdoch, reporting that he hosted an event eight years ago at which a Holocaust survivor compared Israel's policy in Gaza to Nazism. After watching a video of President Trump's supporters yelling, cursing, and flipping their middle fingers at the media during the rally in Tampa this week, a Politico reporter weighed in, unleashing no-holds-barred tweets that described the screaming crowd as toothless garbage people. And I think that means... That doesn't mean people who collect the garbage. I think it means people who actually... The tweets from Mark Caputo, he covers Florida politics for Politico, fueled criticism from conservatives, really... You didn't expect that, did you? The uh, following day, Caputo deleted his tweets and detweeted his leets and apologized, saying he should not have stirred further rage and division in an already deeply polarized landscape. He shared images of the tweets he deleted, saying there is mistakes to own. I'll do better, he said. The fault is mine for confusing, conf causing confusion and feeding anger. These flippant comments on my part only made things worse and contributed to a cycle of rage I should not have inflamed further. So I'm sorry. Political spokesman said that the tweets did not meet the company's standards. Editors have addressed the issue. And addressed the ball if they're golfing. A Chicago-based restaurant chain has apologized for asking Hawaiians to stop using two Hawaiian words. Over the weekend, a furor broke out when it came to light that the Aloha Poke Company had sent cease and desist letters to several small businesses operating as some variation of Aloha Poke, which it owns the trademark for. Many of these businesses are run by Native Hawaiians. Aloha, Aloha Poke Company is not. The company took to Facebook after there were calls for a boycott of the chain. 
to share a deep apology that the issue had been so triggering and to defend itself against what it calls misinformation spread on social media. The Post said the company had not tried to own the words Aloha or Poke and had not told Hawaiian businesses they could not use the words Aloha or Poke. They merely enforced their trademark, which protects the use of the phrase, the two words together in connection with food service. Company founder Zach Friedlander, who no longer works at the company, saying he was deeply saddened by the reaction that some have taken. He went to say, went on to say the reaction was a witch hunt based on false news. It's catching. It's getting around. And a bishop in Pennsylvania has released the names of 71 priests and church personnel who've been credibly accused of sexual abuse dating back to the 1940s. Bishop Ronald William Gaynor said during a press conference that they list details some very sad moments in our history. The list will be published online by the diocese. Many of those victimized as children continue as survivors to suffer from the harm they've experienced. In my own name and in the name of the diocese, in the name of the Father, oh no, I express profound sorrow and I apologize to the survivors of child sex abuse, Catholic faithful, and to the general public, Gaynor said at his news conference. And a well-known Los Angeles bar owner, that's according to Deutsche Welle, they would know, says he and his partner were asked to move to accommodate a straight couple. The airline has apologized and said that the seats had been double booked. It's Alaska Airlines apologizing following accusations that it forced the gay couple to move seats in favor of a straight couple. The airline said the unfortunate incident was the result of a seating error. Before the incident, Alaska Airlines had a good track record on LGBT rights, It routinely has offered special rates for passengers traveling to pride celebrations around the country. The Apologies of the Week, ladies and gentlemen, copyrighted feature of this broadcast. You, uh, now news of Nice Corp, I guess, you know that probably by now the shareholders of um, Fox, 21st Century Fox, have approved the sale of most of its assets, the uh, movie studio, Um, a lot of other productive assets to the Walt Disney Company. I think the final bid was around $72 billion. Uh, What remains with 21st Century Fox is the Fox TV network and Fox News. Um, And the preceding version of Fox was run by James Murdoch, Rupert's son, He had previously run the news operation in Great Britain at the time of the phone hacking furor, but then was moved over to New York and rescued. Um, The new, smaller Fox with the TV network and uh, and Fox News will be run by James's brother, Lachlan, who had taken a 10-year leave from the family company to go live in Australia. James says um, in the in the words of all, uh, a thousand press releases about people in the business world, he's now exploring other opportunities. And uh, the new Fox, as it's called, uh, still will have some scripted programming, but is uh, putting a, a, a renewed focus on live sporting and quasi-sporting events, hello WWE, and on reality programming. Maybe even this one. This week, on Keeping Up with the Murdochs, a family dinner in the south of France. Uh, 
What's this, then? I told you, darling. Chef prepared mussels to start. Mm, these are great. Really salty. Mm. Oh, James, mm-hmm. well, I want to know what the mussels taste like. I bloody ask you. <laughs> I just... You just said enough, bro. <sighs> hey, bro, I was running a great big fox, not the little rump fox you're running, uh-huh. when you were sulking in Australia being the CEO of... I don't know, a fried kangaroo franchise? Boys, boys, it's a lovely evening in one of the nicest parts of the world. I think I've told everyone who'll listen a million times. The muscles make my face swell up, so hand me some bread, pumpkin, and I'll just sop up the juice. Well, as long as it's not pumpkin bread. (laughs) (laughs) Thank goodness the new fox is not going to focus on comedy. Ah, more important, perhaps. It's not going to focus on you. Boys, did either of you get out to the beach today? Mm. The waves were higher than than you-know-who on a Grammy night. Oh, you can say his bloody name, you know. Well, last time I did, your face swelled up. But that was the damn muscles. All right. Sorry. Oh, James. Mm. Look, we haven't talked uh, much since... uh, since the Passover. James, mm-hmm. I'm sorry. I've been so busy with Rupert's recoup. Oh, somebody had to care. We need you convert to the Hebrew persuasion. Not that Passover. He was passed over for... I was passed uh, over for the prodigal freaking son. Mm. But, you know, there's there's no reason why 23 years of loyalty should be rewarded. Pass the terrain. Oh, you you could reach for it like oh. you reach for everything else in your whole bloody life, like control. As to Murdoch's, this is not helping my recovery from, uh, you know, the back thing. Sorry. Mm. Here's the bloody terrain. Thank you. Oh, mm-hmm. that's so very French. Blood terrain. Can't we get these people to just make a freaking burger? James, mm. you've, uh, you've had your go. The papers, the network... You know, it's so sad that Elizabeth couldn't make it here, you Mm -hmm. know, Mm -hmm. for real family dinner for once. Oh, Liz is too busy creating compelling content. I think she's crash-editing the new season of Celebrity Binge Watch. She's being snarky, but it happens to be true. Uh, Look, but now it's Lachlan's turn. Yes, I think loyalty is a virtue. And so is patience. And greed. Oh. I, now, see, we were having such a lovely pre-dinner thing. Well, uh, Lucky, mm-hmm. uh, Donald told me he uh, called you. Yeah. I, I gave him your cell number. Yeah, he did, and uh, he congratulated me. Even though he had a note on his desk that said, do not congratulate. <laughs> Snarky <laughs> alert number two. Oh, well. And uh, he said he hoped that, uh, I think the way he put it was that... Uh, at Fox News, nothing was going to change. Meaning he doesn't want to have to start watching bloody Good Morning America. <laughs> Speaking of which, did all y'all know that George Stephanopoulos used to work in the White House? Am I late to the party again? Blonde uh, alert. <laughs> no, just because my hair covers my ears doesn't mean I can't hear. Okay. Uh, uh, the president also said we've got to start giving Hannity better lighting. I asked him what was wrong with the lighting, mm-hmm. and, and then he just had to ring off. Okay, look, before Frenchie in there brings on a duck horse. James, mm-hmm. just as a concerned father mm-hmm. or somebody who plays one on TV, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. why don't you update us on your future plans? Okay, uh... Few things in the fire, kindling or wood. I, <laughs> we think there's a niche in the messaging space for a solution that goes way beyond Snapchat in terms of privacy and avoiding people being trolled for old tweets. Mm. Sounds promising. Mm-hmm. It's a new social messaging app called Poof. I love the name. That mm. uh, destroys your message uh, the minute you've recorded it before anybody even sees it. <laughs> 
I think you found your own MySpace. Hey, hey. We're being kind to the unemployed tonight. For a change. Let's bring on the damn duck. Next time, try to sell Disney on a Fox News ride at Disneyland. On Keeping Up with the Murdochs. brings us to News of the Olympic Movement. Produced by Jim Ebersole, Jr. Well, an operation that makes as much money as the Olympic Games needs one thing. Volunteers. The Tokyo Olympics and Paralympics is going to make a 
a number of firsts in the record books, including the number of volunteers the games will need, a staggering 110,000. The recruitment starts in September. The organizing committee and local governments hosting Olympic events. They see it as a challenge. Really? You think? The organizers will try to attract some 80,000 games volunteers who will serve as guides at competition venues. Tokyo Metropolitan Government going to try to recruit as many as 30,000 city volunteers in order to show people around this, the town. The arrangements were modeled after the uh, London Games. Other cities and towns will be hosting the competitions as well, so the uh, total number of volunteers is expected to be even larger. The public's views on the system of volunteers have included some harsh voices. When the working conditions for the Games volunteers were announced, a tweet exclaimed, quote, the volunteers' conditions are like sweatshops, unquote. As the organizers had requested volunteers to work for around eight hours a day for ten days or more. That was based on London. It apparently sounded too demanding for some, so the organizing committee has slimmed down the requirements. For working adults, it's not easy to get many days off from work to serve as volunteers. Students have difficulty imagining what they're going to be doing in two years' time. An organizing committee official said, We will try to find people who are keen. The committee is poised to strengthen its outreach. You, are, you always got to be poised to strengthen your outreach. Its outreach toward universities and corporations in a bid to deepen their understandings of the volunteer program. I bet corporations will be happy to volunteer some people. If I know anything about volunteers. And let's talk about the Olympic legacy. Me, I'll do the talking. According to data from the Brazilian Association of Hotel Industries, a total of 16 hotels in the city of Rio have been forced out of business over the last two years. Why, that's since the Olympics. Inspired by the promise Rio was going to become the city of the moment, hoteliers and tourist agencies received a special credit line from the National Bank for Economic Development in order to fund their construction ventures. At the height of a record-breaking year for Brazilian tourism, there were almost 60,000 hotel rooms available in the market. However, in a similar fashion to what has happened to the sporting facilities built for the Games, for the sake of which entire communities lost their homes and livelihoods, some of these hotels now find themselves depleted, disused, and empty, according to Brazil reports. As a result, hotels across the city have closed down, causing economic and social difficulties as thousands of hotel staff now find themselves unemployed. Hotels suffered the most, mostly in the uh, outskirts of the city where the Olympic Stadium was built. Tourism is a highly important industry in Rio. It brings in almost 5% of the city's GDP. Letting go of such high numbers of staff, therefore, as well as having to close major infrastructure, has had a detrimental impact on the city's economy. Brazil no longer has resources left to promote the country abroad because it spent so much on the. However, the uh, head of the government tourist division remains optimistic that in years to come, the government tourism sector hopes to bring in more money from partnerships or hold the Winter Olympics. It's a movement, and we all need one. Say it with me now, every day.
Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's going to conclude this week's edition of the show from right here in Edinburgh. No, I'm not. I'm wearing trousers. Thanks for asking. And thanks for not asking. And um, the program comes back, right back at you next week on this same or your other audio device of choice at a time, either of your choosing or of its you figure out which, or I'll figure out which, and I'll, I'll email you. Speaking of email, the email address for this program, a, a opportunity to get uh, Cars I Talk t-shirts for the whole family and for the neighborhood, really, and uh, playlist of the music heard here on all at harryshare.com. But if you'd agree to join with me next week, well, that would be just like never having mentioned <laughs> President Trump's name once during a radio program. Would you do that? Alrighty, thank you very much. Uh huh. A tip of the show: Chapeau to San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago in exile, and Hawaii desks. Thanks as always to Pam Halstead and to Jenny Lawson at WWNO New Orleans for help with today's program. And thank you for listening. Oh, and me. Thank you for asking or not asking. I'm on Twitter at the Harry Shearer. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans flagship station of the Change is Easy radio network. So long from Bonnie, Scotland. Sorry. <laughs>